Pride is a very curious thing. Pride can be both good and bad, a virtue and a vice, and often somewhere in between. We can be proud parents or proud citizens. We can be proud of our achievements and even our accomplishments. But pride can also be a vice when it becomes more about us than about others. When our parenting is better than others, or our citizenship is elevated above others. Too often our accomplishments and our achievements become our identity. They shape who we are, and more importantly, how we want others to perceive us. In the end, the virtue of pride drifts into the vice of pride, which causes blindness. We can be so proud of our children that we do not see their mistakes. So proud to be an American that we are blinded by her glaring flaws. So proud of our achievements that we stop growing and learning and achieving more. In the end, pride blinds one from seeing the true reality that is before them. A reality that is so clear. You see, friends, this is why it is so easy for you to point out pride in others. And why it is so difficult for you to see it in yourself. The Proverbs remind us, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Why? Because pride blinds you from seeing the reality. So, so blinding is pride that, that you are worse, the Proverbs say, than a fool. Spiritual blindness, the Bible teaches us, is a condition that each and every one of us inherit through our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Spiritual blindness before we come to Christ is, is where each and, one, each and every one of us are born into the, this world blind spiritually and unable to see. And our passage this morning in John chapter 9 reminds us that apart from the miracle of regeneration or the miracle of the new birth, we remain spiritually blinded unto death. Chapter 9 is, if you will, a living illustration of what we used to be before Jesus saved us. John chapter 9 is an illustration that Jesus uses to really culminate what he has been teaching all the way back beginning in chapter 5. The series of lessons that Jesus has been teaching us through John's gospel culminates in John chapter 9 and 10, demonstrating through this illustration of a man born blind who receives sight to those around him who thought they could see, but were really blind. The question that we have considered throughout these chapters is, what will become of God's historic people and their relationship to God's eternal Son? So with that in our mind, as we're thinking about this theme, about spiritual blindness, And reminding where we were last week in John chapter 8, where Jesus declared that he was the light of the world. Remember, we talked about how light has two effects. It not only illumines, it, it, it allows you to see things. So if you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light and wow, you can see. So you don't fall down, trip over something. So also light blinds. Light has that dual effect of not only illuminating, but blinding. Well, friends, we see that theme then carry over into John 9 in a sort of tangible, real-life illustration that you might uh, get a better sense of it. Well, I'm going to begin reading in John 9, verse 1. And Jesus passed by, 
he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was, the, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that, that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the, be the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who, may, who do not see may see, 
and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and asked him, Are we also blind? Jesus answered to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Well, as we think about this chapter this morning, one prevailing truth seems to be the main point that John is driving at. That only Jesus, the light of the world, has the power to give spiritual sight to the blind. Jesus, being the light of the world, brings, brings sight to the blind and blinds the sighted. This is one of those hard truths that Jesus told his disciples that he would teach them. That he is the one who would bring life where there is death and condemnation for those who claimed they could see. This morning, I want us to walk through sort of the main parts of the story, make some, some general observations, and then uh, some concluding remarks as we think about its application to our lives. So we're going to come at this a little bit differently this morning as we think about, because it is a narrative story and, and really a unit. I want to think about it together as one sweeping unit, uh, like different scenes in a story or a play. Uh, so Jesus sets this up in a in, in several scenes. In verses 1 through 7, we see the sign. And then really in the heart of the chapter there in verses 8, all the way through the end of chapter 9, verse 34, we see the reactions. We see four reactions to Jesus' healing. And then finally, in verses 35 through 41, Jesus offers the explanation to the healing. He gives us understanding, and from that we will spring into our application. Well, we see here in verses 1 through 7 the sign Jesus heals a man, we are told, who was born blind. Look here at verses 1 through 3. Jesus' disciples stumble upon a man as they are leaving the temple court, and there's some discussion whether or not Jesus is, is performing this miracle on his way out of the temple, or if this was sometime later in between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, which is what chapter 10 is about, uh, the festival that centers around that chapter. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the temple area, and they, they come across a man who is blind, a blind beggar, uh, one who is begging for food or for Money And his disciples ask him a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' disciples are only imploring uh, what most Jews would have thought when they thought about physical uh, deformity, when they thought about uh, being born blind or lame or deaf. Uh, there would all often be a discussion of how it attributes to sin. And Jesus really doesn't handle the question, does he? Uh, other than the saying that he said it wasn't because of this man. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, uh, we're not going to get into this theological discussion over this, but rather to understand that this particular man in this particular context was born blind so that God might display his work in him. In other words, Jesus says that, that sometimes God in his strange providence allows his people to suffer so that he might display his glory. And uh, as we think about this contextually, as we think about this theologically, uh, blindness and lameness and deafness, uh, the Bible is very clear, can sometimes be a result of sin. Uh, maybe someone is sinning and, and doing some sinful thing and they end up blinding themselves or, or hurting themselves or or laming themselves in, in some sense. But, but Jesus here is focused in on, on God's providence in a fallen world. That these things are a result of the fall, but God uses them for his own glory. And this is what we see in verses 1 through 3, in that what Jesus describes in this man is that God providentially saw this man to be born blind, that this particular miracle might take place. That Jesus might heal 
this man. Now, Jesus makes emphatically clear then in verses 4 through 6 that he is the remedy to the, the fallenness of this man's condition. If we are to rightly understand that this man's blindness is a result of the fall, not because of his particular sin, something that causally happened because of something he did, but rather as a general applicable result of this fallen world, Jesus is making emphatically clear in verses 4 through 6 that he and he alone is the solution to man's fallenness. That, that, that the depravity and the fallenness of man displayed in this man's blindness, right? So to just really recap here, God did not create this world imperfect, but perfect and good. And, and so blindness is a result, Jesus is saying, of this particular fallen condition and that he is the remedy for it. By being the light of the world. In other words, Jesus here is displaying what he taught us in John chapter 8. Jesus, in essence, saying, listen, guys, remember I just said that I'm the light of the world. I'm the one who will bring life where there is death. I will be the one who brings light where there is darkness. Well, let me show you what I mean in a very physical and tangible sense. I'm the one who brings spiritual sight where there is spiritual blindness. Now, getting back to the actual healing, we are told that Jesus here spits on the ground, uses his saliva to mix mud and, and puts it on the man's eyes. And, and there's not much, maybe perhaps, theological significance other than perhaps Jesus did it this way in order to irritate the Pharisees. It really seems to be what... Because what the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of doing is not only healing a man, which would have been forbidden on the Sabbath. But the kneading together, like when you knead dough, what do you take? You take flour and water, you, you know, and some other stuff, and you knead it together. Well, according to the Mishnah, which was basically the commentary on the law that the, Pharisee, the Pharisees had come up with, um, it was strictly forbidden to do what Jesus was about to do. Spitting on the ground, taking mud, and making this ointment then to apply to this man's eyes. But the miracle, we can't miss. Jesus takes these ordinary elements and he fashions them and forms them and anoints this man's eye and commands him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash. And miraculously, this man is healed. So I don't want to get into the weeds, if you will, on, well, why did Jesus do it this way? Why didn't he just command it? So on and so forth. Because if we get into the weeds, we kind of miss the point, which is a man was born blind. We don't know how old he is. We know he's at least over the age of 13, maybe much older. He was blind and miraculously he saw. A couple other things I want to point out to you in this text, in verses 1 through 7. Notice here that Jesus displays creative power by fashioning the dirt from the ground to anoint this man's eyes. That perhaps Jesus cho chose this particular way to display that he is the creator God, the one who is the preexistent eternal son who, who made this world. I think the other thing I would note in this text is the fact the man who doesn't know Jesus, never met Jesus before, Jesus just walks up and puts some mud on the guy's eye and says, hey, go wash it off. And he does it. By faith, he does it. And one of the things I want to point out to you in this text at the very end is I want you to see how this man's blindness, spiritual blindness, is progressively turned from blind to 2020. Here he does it, he's not can't see. A man comes up, starts putting dirt on his face, and he doesn't doesn't just leave and, and go to his friends and like, you know, hey buddy, what's going on with your eyes, man? You got some dirt on your eyes. What's going on? I don't know. Some dude just walked up, put it on me, he was kind of weirdo. Um, I don't know. No, but he by faith believes he goes down to the pool of Siloam and washes it off. He believes something miraculous is, is going on, that there's something that God was doing in this man's heart. No ordinary person would do this. 
By faith, he believes that he will walk out of that water seeing. Well, this is the sign. It's simple and straightforward. A man was blind, and now he can see. And the Pharisees go crazy. Well, friends, we see here in the second, really the main idea here in verses 8 through 34 are these reactions to the, to the healing. Now, if you and I were here in this room and, and, and one who is blind could miraculously see, surely we wouldn't uh, give ourselves into analyzing the details as to how it went about. But, but what we see in these four interviews is the how. How did this happen? Please share me. The very first interviews that we see take place are there in verses 8 through 12 in that next uh, paragraph. Here, this man's neighbors and friends begin to investigate how he was healed. They knew him. They, they had lived among him. They saw him daily begging there on the side of the road, pleading for money and for food. And, and lo and behold, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's out and about walking around and they begin to mummer about, mutter about themselves. What, what happened to you? How is it that you now see? They know that something strange has happened and, and the man reports to them that, that Jesus had healed his eyes. Notice a couple things here. Verse 11, when they asked him, how were your eyes opened? The man responds, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. See, he's starting to get a little bit more sight, isn't he? He knew his name. He, he knew his name was Jesus. That's all he really knew about him. He, he didn't know that he was the Savior. He didn't know he was the Son of God. All he knows, as he'll testify later, is that he was blind, but now he sees. Later there in verse 12, you see, as they ask, well, where is he at? Where's he at? We want to meet this guy. He responds by saying, I don't know. His, his blindness, as you'll see, is connected to his knowledge. And the point that John is driving here is that spiritual blindness is, is in correlation to one's uh, spiritual knowledge. And there's a sense in which our knowledge is blind and needing miraculously to see. And so these neighbors, wanting to kind of understand what was going on in this man, they take him to the experts. You might wonder, well, why, why do the neighbors take him to the Pharisees? Well, they don't know that the Pharisees are out to get Jesus. They don't know that the religious leaders are out to, you know, arrest him. They're, they're, they're in essence, wanting to get some expert advice on how they are to make sense of this man's healing. Was this demonic? Was there some sort of, is this just like a big ruse that his parents have been playing? And maybe there was a, a profit scheme that was being run by his parents. And, and so they, they wanted understanding. And so they, we're told here in verses 13 through 17 that the religious leaders interview the man. Now, this is the first of two interviews. And notice here, as, as I read, the emphasis and the clues that John gives the first clue there comes in verse 14 it was a sabbath day when jesus made the mud and anointed the man's eyes john wants to make clear in our minds as we read that this harkens back all the way to chapter 5 you remember the lame man that was sitting there by the pool and uh, wanting to go down and and jesus came and he says listen man just get your bed get out of here and he healed him miraculously, just told him, get up. The guy had never hadn't walked in years. And miraculously, he healed him. And he happened to do it on a Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees lost their minds over it. And here again, we're told that Jesus is, is doing this work on the Sabbath day. Pushing against their, their man-written laws. You see, Jesus wasn't really breaking the Old Testament Sabbath. Uh, the fifth commandment. He wasn't breaking the, the, these, these laws. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. What Jesus was doing was Jesus was breaking man's laws and pushing against their misunderstanding of the law. 
All of their questions centered around how exactly they wanted to know. They wanted to trap Jesus. Okay, we want to know. Give us the details. Spare none. How did he make the mud again? What did he do? Oh, he mixed it. Oh, he kneaded it together. Oh, well, this is very, very clearly a violation of our rules and therefore warrants arrest and ultimately death. These Pharisees, these religious leaders would stop at nothing to see Jesus dead. They were so blinded by their own sin that they could not see the miracle. Never once do they do they comment, wow, this is pretty incredible. The guy was blind and now he sees. Never once in this chapter do you see them commenting on the miracle itself. They don't deny the miracle. In fact, the miracle itself is proof of Jesus's condemnation in their eyes. Well, as the men interview the man, notice here at the conclusion there in verse 17, they ask him again, what did he say to you? What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He responds, he's a prophet. The man has gone from, his name's Jesus, I don't know where he's at, to he's a prophet. Slowly, these, this man's spiritual eyes are beginning to see. Slowly, this man is beginning to recognize who Jesus really is. Well, from there, the, the religious leaders, they make a decision. They say, okay, look, we'll get the story straight. Let's go to the man's parents. Of course, his parents will know whether or not he was truly blind from birth. Or perhaps he's just been faking it. And of course... Uh, They investigate the parents and the parents respond, yeah, this is our kid. Yeah, he was born blind. Yeah, we've always known him to be be blind. So we've got the neighbors and friends testifying, yes, he was born blind. Now we've got his parents. But his parents aren't willing to give all the details because they feared man more than they feared God. We're told here in in the text that That the Jews had already threatened them that if anyone was to confess Jesus to be the Messiah, that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. They would be cut off from their fellowship with their fellow Jews. They would be isolated from the promises and blessings of God. This was a serious, serious threat. And his parents were unwilling to take it. But as we'll see, this man is not not living in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. And so in verses 18 through 23, we see that interview with his parents. And then in verses 24 through 34, a second and final interview with the man who was congenially blind. They bring the man back. And in verse 24, they appeal to the highest authority. They say to him, give glory to God. Now, they're not saying worship God. This would be akin to you putting your hand on the Bible in court. You know, and when you testify, you testify under oath. And perhaps you put your Bible, your hand on the Bible. What are you doing there? You're, you're saying that I'm appealing to the highest authority. And I promise before God himself that I'm telling the truth. And this is what the, this is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying, listen, we want you to give glory to God. Tell us the truth. Stop lying to us. Stop telling these, these lies. What happened to you? We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man utters probably one of the most famous phrases in all of John's gospel. One of the richest, most clearest confessions of any true disciple there in verse 25. Look with me. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that a clear confession? I don't know all the details. I, I don't know how it was baked. I don't know how it happened. But I tell you one thing happened. I know that I was blind. And now I can see. I don't know how the miracle. I don't know all the, 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 the scientific background to it. I don't know what happened. But I know one thing I can see now. And you can't deny that. 
the man makes clear that Jesus miraculously healed him. From here, the religious leaders, of course, are driven to greater anger and frustration. But I want you to see this man, his spiritual eyes being opened yet even further. Verse 27, I've told you already and you did not listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He wittingly and ironically pokes at them a bit. And again, they appeal to Moses as their highest authority. We've already settled the Moses issue in, the, in weeks previous. Jesus has made clear, if you really believed in Moses, if you really followed Moses, then you would see that Moses wrote about me. If Moses was here, he would testify that I am the Christ. And the man concludes there in verse 30. Look there. This is an amazing thing. That you do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And this is a blind beggar, friends. Who in this society would have been relegated to the fringes. And now he becomes a master theologian, doesn't he? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Here he's appealing to some Old Testament text. He's saying, listen, I know my Bible. I know my God. My God doesn't listen to sinners, he says. My God listens to those who do his will. My God listens to those who believe by faith. God listens to him. He hears his prayers and he answers Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone's eyes has been been open, especially a man born blind. He's like, well, maybe it might be possible. You know, maybe something happened to a guy who who got blinded later in life. But never, he says, since the beginning of the world has it been heard. Not in all the prophets, not in all the healings, in all the Old Testament. This is truly an amazing thing, he says. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man's eyes are beginning to see, isn't he? He's beginning to see a little bit more and more about who Jesus really is. But the Pharisees conclude, this can't be anyone from God. The story here is filled with mixed reactions. From the neighbors and friends to the religious leaders using this as an opportunity to trap Jesus. The man's own parents unwilling to to really stand up for him and kind of just throws him to the wolves out of fear of man. We see this man's knowledge of Jesus becoming increasingly clear. Little by little, he sees who Jesus truly is. Well, finally, here in verses 35 through 41, we see the the explanation, don't we? Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, as you're reading that, you might have forgot a couple things. Number one, when Jesus healed this guy, the guy couldn't see. He had only heard Jesus's voice one time. So perhaps he remembered his voice. Perhaps. But more than likely he didn't. And so this scene is a man who who is talking to Jesus who doesn't know who Jesus is. Similar to the two boys on the road to Emmaus when they're walking with Jesus and they're just like, they they just didn't didn't dawn on him. This, This is Jesus we're talking to. This man is talking to Jesus, does not know that this is the man who healed him. And Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now again, as a reminder, Jesus, this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. If, G, if you were to ask Jesus, hey Jesus, what, what, do you, what do you want me to call you? The Son of Man. Why? Because Daniel had prophesied that when the Son of Man comes, that he would become the King of Kings, essentially. We use that, the Lord of Lords and King. He would become the supreme ruler of the cosmos. And Jesus would use this language to point to his supremacy as the Lord of Lords and as the King of Kings. And and Jesus here says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, of course, we've already seen this guy knows his Bible. 
And he knows who the Son of Man is, this this anticipated figure who would come and and bring God's people into freedom and rescue them. Notice there in verse 36, the man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? In other words, he says, where is he? Who is he? Identify him. Point him out to me. I can see now. Where is he? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. Now look at that again. Look at verse 37 again. What did Jesus say to him? You've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. Did you see it? You see him. He couldn't see him before. He was blind. But now he can see him. Jesus doesn't mean like, oh, you can see him in your heart. You can see him in your mind's eye. No, no, Jesus literally means before you couldn't see me, but now you can see me. You can see me with your own eyes. These new eyes I gave you. These eyes that were blind and I just gave you and you can see him. And that guy who's talking, the guy you see talking to you, that's him, the son of man. I'm he. Jesus gave this man eyes to see that he was the son of man. Not only literally, not only literally, but spiritually. The man responds, he burst out there in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Lord, I believe. This isn't just some, you know, sir, I believe in you. No, this is. Lord, oh Lord, Lord God Almighty, I believe, and he worships him. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is fully God. For if he was not fully God, what this man just did amounts to blasphemy. For he not only calls him the covenant name of the Lord God Almighty, but he is so bold to bow down and worship him as the Son of God. Jesus concludes by giving an explanation to the man, which is really the the main idea that we've been putting forward. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, you might think, now, I know my Bible. I know John 3, 16 and 17. And it says in John 3, 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, he didn't come to condemn, but to save. But whoever does not believe, John said, is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only son of God. Listen. This is after John 3, 16, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You See how it all ties together? The light of the world has come and you and I, we're like little roaches. When the lights get turned on, we run. Because we love our sin more than we love God. See, Jesus says, I came in the world because those who are so proud, so proud in their sin, so proud in their self-righteousness, so proud in their achievements and who they are because they're ethnically Jew or because they've done some good deeds. Jesus says, you know, those folks, those are the real blind people. And the ones who can see are the humble. And I came to save the humble, he says, and I came to condemn the seen. This is what Jesus means there in verse 41. When the Pharisees hear him say this, they ask, are we blind? Anticipating Jesus' response, yeah, you're blind. But he doesn't say that, does he? No, look what he says. If you were blind, you would have no guilt or no sin. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the point Jesus is making. 
If you have no need for Jesus, if you have no need for a Savior, then Jesus didn't come to save you. For in this world has no need for a Savior until Jesus gives them eyes to see the need to be saved. You see, sin darkens our eyes so much that we cannot see. And it's not until the light of the glory of Jesus Christ shines in our our dark eyes that we can see our need for him. You know, that illustration that John uses of light and darkness is so helpful. Friend, if you and I lived in the dark all the time, never had the lights on, we wouldn't know how dirty we are. We wouldn't know if we had like, you know, crumbs all over our face. We, we wouldn't know. It would only be if we turned the light on that we would see that we've been living like gross lives and there's just trash everywhere and we're just filthy and dirty and gross. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. This is, that's what the miracle of the gospel does. It brings life and light where there is darkness. And this man has gone from total darkness. Unable to see, to complete sight. From a man named Jesus, he came by and put some mud on my eyes, to, Lord, I believe and I worship you. This man has gone from total blindness to 2020 vision. And so have we, if we've experienced the saving power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I want to consider just four concluding remarks as we think about this story. Four four points of application for our lives. Number one, I believe this story is meant to convince us that Jesus really is the Messiah. We heard it earlier in Isaiah 35. Did you hear it? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, for your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Oh, yeah? How will we know when he comes and saves us? He will. He will do this, he says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. When Jesus came and healed this man, he was declaring that a new era had begun in God's redemptive plan. That he was ushering in the new kingdom and the new heavens and new earth. That what Isaiah prophesied was coming about. Not fully, but surely. Or in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, and to bring out of prisoners from the dungeons, those who sit in darkness. Friend, these miracles are not just mere miracles for miracles' sake. These point to the reality and the assurance that Jesus is who he said he is. Friend, I hope you leave here more convinced that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. But I hope, secondly, that you leave here humbled, knowing why and how you have believed. You see, Christians of all people are the most humble. Because if we believe John 9 is true, that man could not make himself see. Nothing he could have done. I mean, he could have spit on the ground all day long and made all the mud he wanted to. He'd have looked like a fool. But it was until Jesus found him and healed him that he could see. John 6, 44, Jesus said this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, what what Jesus will say in the next chapter in John chapter 10, the sheep hear my voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and others they will not listen. In other words, Jesus uses a different illustration of hearing versus seeing. Jesus says, listen, only my sheep hear my voice. They were made to hear my voice. And when they hear it, they come to me. 
You see, brothers and sisters, we ought to be humbled to know that we didn't stumble upon Jesus. We didn't find Jesus, but that Jesus found us. That Jesus brought us from, from blindness to sight. That all the things you know about God today was a miracle. Was a miracle. The third point I want us to consider in application is that, that brothers and sisters, that you are clear in your mind concerning who Jesus is, and particularly his work of blinding and giving sight. And this is a truth I think you might want to think a little bit harder about. Jesus makes something very emphatically clear here in this passage. He says, I have come into this world to blind eyes and to give sight. As God promised to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, go to the people and say to them, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. See, God's work of blinding eyes spiritually is an act of God's judgment upon our pride, sinful hearts. Or as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Do you know that? Friends, this is why it is so hard to share the gospel with friends and family. This is why, friend, you are talking to spiritually blind people just like you were. But fourthly, we see in this passage, it should encourage and reassure us in our evangelism. If Jesus is the one who gives sight, not me, not you, not anyone, not the world's greatest evangelist, Billy Graham would tell you, he didn't save anyone. Amen. Friends, you can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. But Jesus saves. He uses us. And we should be encouraged to know that Jesus can bring life and light where there is darkness. There is no one too dark for Jesus. No one too far gone for Jesus. No one too hard hearted that Jesus can't change. That should reassure us, encourage us, even propel us in our evangelism. Pray to the God who can give sight to the blind. Pray to the God who can give spiritual sight. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is a spiritual battle. And it must be met with, with spiritual means, which is prayer. Do you believe, John chapter 6, verse 37, that all that the Father gives to me come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out? Do you have that confidence when, you, when you're sharing the gospel this week with, with your lost spouse or, or your lost child or, or your lost neighbor or your lost co-worker? Do you have the confidence to know that Jesus gives light and sight or as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Did you catch what John said there at the beginning? That he sent him to the pool of Siloam. The word means sent, the sent one. John wanted to make clear in our minds that Jesus was the one sent by God. It wasn't the pool. It wasn't the mud. It was the sent one. And what the sent one did when he saved you is he commissioned you to be sent ones. To go into the world and to share the gospel. To be the agents of reconciliation. To be the ones who are assured and confident that know that when you preach the gospel, life comes. This is how Paul concludes Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. 
How does spiritual sight come to the spiritually blind? Through the preaching of the gospel. How how does faith come to, to one who is sitting by the roadside begging for his very life? It comes when Christ spoke his word and the man received sight. Friends, it's no different than the lost around us. It's no different than us. What we need more of is not the the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of men. What we need is more of the word of Christ. It is the only remedy for a lost and dying world. Only Jesus, the light of the world, has the power to give spiritual sight to the blind. Apart from the miracle of the new birth, none of us would ever see Jesus. None of us would ever believe upon Jesus. It is only by the power of the Spirit. And so our prayer is, Spirit, descend upon the dead hearts of our friends and family. Descend upon the lostness of this world. Humbly come to Jesus today. Trust in Him. Charles Spurgeon once said, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back His hand. Friend, you'll never come to Jesus unless you know your need for Him. I pray you need Him today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through all that we say and do. Father, I pray, I plead that you would bring life where there is death, light where there is darkness. That that perhaps those this morning who for so many years have thought that they are spiritually sighted. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them that they are spiritually blind. That they would see you for who you truly are the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man, who's come to reign in glory. Father, I pray, I plead that you would bring life this week in the conversations we'll have about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that you would rescue from the dungeons of darkness those we love most, that you would bring them to yourself. We believe you can do it. We believe in the power of the gospel. And so save for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.